Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day I record them, go to petershift.locals.com and sign up. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Sign up for Indeed now and get a $75 credit towards your first sponsored job. Plus, earn up to $500 extra in sponsored job credits with Indeed's virtual interviews. Visit Indeed.com Peter to learn more. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Mint Mobile. For people who hate their phone bills and are ready to cut the ties with big wireless. Now you can cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month and get a plan shipped to your door for free at mintmobile.com gold. The big story today is inflation, although inflation should be the big story every day, but it was particularly big today because we got the May consumer price index. But not only was the inflation news bad, but so was the market's reaction to that news. And I'm going to get to the market's reaction a little bit later. First, I want to concentrate on the news itself. And remember, before we got this report, it was widely touted that we had already seen peak inflation. Most people believed that the 8.5% year-over-year inflation rate that we had in March marked the peak, and it was going to be downhill from there. Everybody was talking peak inflation, peak inflation. I kept saying inflation is as much peak now as it was transitory then. I saw no evidence that inflation was peaking. I've been saying that we're closer to the trough of inflation than the peak. We are just getting started. Inflation is going to get a whole lot worse. And the report that we got today backs me up because we now have a new cycle high for inflation on a year-over-year basis. The markets had been expecting a 0.7% rise in consumer prices month over month which was better than double the 0.3% increase in the prior month. A lot of that was going to be due to the increase in gas prices. Well, not only did we beat expectations, but we beat them by a pretty wide margin. Prices were up a full 1% on the month. The range of expectations was from 0.6% to 0.8%. Although yesterday afternoon, there were some rumors that were started by J.P. Morgan that the inflation number would come out hotter than expected. So I think some investors were bracing for a bigger number, although I think few brace for one as big as one full percent. Annualize that, you're talking about better than 12% per year inflation if that keeps up. On a year-over-year basis, the expectation was 8.2%, which would have been below the 8.3% from April and well below the 8.5% from March, which again was regarded as peak inflation. Well, we now have a new peak because the year-over-year rate came out at 8.6%. That's higher than the high expectation of 8.4%. So that is a new high. So clearly, inflation did not peak in March if it's higher in May. Now, some people may say, okay, it didn't peak in March, but we're sure that the peak is in in May. But there is no indication that inflation is going to stop rising in May. All of the information that you look at, if you're looking at it objectively, is that inflation is going to continue to get worse, especially if you understand the cause of all this inflation. We didn't just start creating inflation after COVID. The Fed really started flooding the economy with inflation Back in 2009, you're talking about 12 years ago of pouring inflation into the economy. We are now drowning in inflation. And people think the Fed's going to mop up all this liquidity by raising interest rates to 2 or 3%. No, not even a chance. That is still 
highly stimulative inflationary policy. We are continuing to inflate money supply. Interest rates are being held artificially low, and we're still dealing with all this inflation that's in the pipeline. I mean, anything the Fed does today isn't even going to show up in these numbers for another year or two, if not even more than that. But of course, it hasn't even done enough to make a difference. Everything is getting worse. The Fed, as I've been saying, is falling further and further behind the curve every time it hikes rates. Now, even if you look at the X food and energy number, the so-called core rate was supposed to increase by 0.5, which would have been a little bit of an improvement over the 0.6 from the prior month. Instead, we rose by 0.6 again, and year over year, the core is up 6%, not as bad as the 6.2 from the previous month, but higher than the 5.9 that had been expected. But either way you look at it, this was a horrible report card on inflation. And believe it or not, that wasn't the only piece of bad economic news that came out today. The other one was consumer sentiment. The preliminary read for the University of Michigan June Consumer Sentiment Index was supposed to come out at 58.5. And that would have actually been a slight improvement over the 58.4 that we got in May. Instead, consumer sentiment crashed all the way down to 50.2. Now, that is the lowest it's ever been in the history of this survey. Now, I didn't know how long this Michigan consumer confidence number had been around, so I had to look it up. And apparently, this particular series started in 1978. And at no point since 1978 have consumers ever been more pessimistic than they are right now. Now, what is that telling you? Because the consumer has been through a lot of pain since 1978. Think about it. I mean, consumers are more pessimistic now than they were in 1980 when inflation was at 13.5% and interest rates were at 20%. They are more pessimistic now than they were during the recession that followed that 1981-1982 was the worst recession since the Great Depression. Yet despite that, consumers felt better about their situation then than they do now. They're more pessimistic now than they were during the 1990-91 recession. They're even more pessimistic than they were in the 2001 recession that followed the bursting of the dot-com bubble, where a lot of people got wiped out in their dot-com stocks. They still feel better today than they did then. People are even more pessimistic today than they were at the depths of the 2008 global financial crisis when real estate prices crashed and people lost all their home equity, people lost their homes. We had what we call the Great Recession, which was actually worse than the recession in 81-82. It became the worst recession since the Great Depression. Yet despite all that, consumers were more confident then than they are now. In fact, consumers are more pessimistic now than they were at the depths of the COVID recession and all the lockdowns. And then you got President Biden claiming that the U.S. economy has never been stronger, that it's the strongest economy in the world. How is that possible? If we've got such a great economy, how can consumers be more pessimistic than they've ever been? In fact, the pessimism is being driven by inflation. That's why consumers are so upset. It's because inflation is so bad. In fact, long-term inflation expectations, which are also part of that survey, rose from 3% last month to 3.3%, obviously no longer anchored at 2%. Clearly, the Fed has to understand that inflation expectations have gotten away from them. But of course, If consumers really knew how bad inflation was going to be, why do they assume it's only going to be 3.3? After all, it's 8.6 right now. Imagine how much more pessimistic consumers would be if they weren't so optimistic that inflation is going to come down to 3.3. It's not going to go anywhere near 3.3. It's going higher. In fact, once consumers have a more realistic outlook of just how bad inflation is going to be, Consumer confidence is going to crash to an even lower record low than the one we have right now. And in fact, imagine what would happen to consumer confidence if instead of just talking about fighting inflation, the Fed actually fought it. 
the Fed actually raised interest rates high enough to reduce inflation. If the government actually cut spending or raised taxes, imagine what would happen to a consumer confidence if a lot of these consumers, in addition to looking at higher prices, also lost their jobs. They watched their stock and bond portfolios completely collapsed. They watched their home equity vanish. They watched their taxes go up, their benefits cut. And what about their debt service costs going through the roof? Think of how much more pessimistic consumers would be if the Fed was doing the right thing, which is why the Fed is not doing the right thing. It continues to do the wrong thing. And that's why inflation is going to get much worse. And inflation is not only causing consumer confidence to tank, it's also causing President Biden's approval rating to tank. It hit a new low this week of his presidency. His approval rating is down to 33% and headed lower. Now, that's not an all-time record low. There have been sitting presidents who have had approval ratings lower than 33%. In fact, the low watermark for Donald Trump was 29%. Now, I think Biden's going to take that out soon. Now, if you're wondering which president happened to have the lowest approval rating, it was George W. Bush. His approval rating got all the way down to 19%. And what caused that was the global financial crisis. The stock market crashed, the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns, the implosion of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That's the reason that Barack Obama was elected, because at the end of his second term, Bush was so unpopular that that unpopularity tarnished the campaign of John McCain. And so Barack Obama was able to coast into the White House. But interestingly enough, not only did George W. Bush have the lowest approval rating of any president, he also had the highest. He at one point was 92% approval. And I think that was right after the September 11th attacks in a mood of patriotism. I think everybody rallied around the president. And so he enjoyed a very high approval rating. And then he had a record collapse. But I do believe that by the time Biden finishes his term, he will take out that record. I expect him to end his first and only term with an approval rating below 19%. Now, the only thing that may save him is if he resigns before his numbers sink that low. I mean, maybe people in the Democratic Party kind of force him to resign because they realize that he's never going to get reelected and they want to just get rid of him. Or maybe he'll just die you know, I mean, he's getting old, so he could, you know, die of natural causes, in which case maybe he won't break that low. But if he lives and he finishes his term, it is my prediction that he will have the lowest approval rating of any president because we're not even officially in a recession yet. Imagine how much lower his numbers are going to be when we are and when the inflation problem that is already bad gets much worse. Are you ready for your next hire? Do you want someone with great problem-solving skills who can think like an entrepreneur? Well, if you do, then you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. You can find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed's Instant Match assessments and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get qualified candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job descriptions the moment you sponsor a job. According to Indeed data. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applicants that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all the other job sites combined according to Talent Nest 2019. So join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide that already use Indeed to hire great talent fast. But what I like best about Indeed is how simple they make the hiring process. With virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent seamlessly and do it all in one place. And Indeed makes it easy to connect with your applicants. No need to install anything extra. Indeed's virtual interviews work right from your browser. So sign up for Indeed now and get a $75 credit towards your first sponsored job. Plus, now you can earn $500 extra in sponsored job credits with Indeed's virtual interviews. Visit Indeed.com slash Peter to learn more. Claim your credits at Indeed.com slash Peter. That's Indeed.com slash Peter. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. 
Today wasn't the only day we got bad economic news since I did my last podcast on Tuesday. On Wednesday, we got the mortgage applications for the week. The index was down another 6.5%. That was a big drop. Purchases dropped by 5.1%. Refis dropped by 5.6%. But more significantly, mortgage demand is now at its lowest level in 22 years. Think about that. You have to go all the way back to the year 2000 to find mortgage demand at this level. So mortgage demand is even lower now than it was following the collapse of the housing market in 2008, 2009. The depths of that implosion, as all the air came out of that housing bubble, you still had more demand for mortgages than you have right now. Why has the demand for mortgages collapsed? Well, because people can't afford to buy homes. People can't refinance their homes because everybody already has a rate lower than what's available, which means that you're gonna see a huge collapse in employment in both the home building industry and the mortgage industry. We don't need all these workers to make new homes because people can't afford them. We don't need all these mortgage bankers helping people refinance their loans because they're not gonna refinance their loans because they can't because they've already got the lowest rate. In fact, I spoke about that earlier. One of the reasons that so few homes are gonna be on the market is because people who own homes can't sell because they can't replace their mortgage. They're gonna be trapped in their homes. In fact, for most people, their biggest asset isn't gonna be the house, but the mortgage, which is also the liability of whoever is stuck holding that mortgage because they've got a mortgage, let's say, where they're only collecting 3.5% for the next 25 years, let's say, when inflation is double or triple that and the current mortgage rates are well above that. I mean, anybody who has loaned out money, they would actually pay the borrowers to repay their loan, sell their house and pay off the mortgage, and maybe the lender will pay you money. Although in many cases, it's the taxpayer because it's the U.S. government that owns these mortgages. So it's the taxpayer who's on the hook. That's where the liability is. But if the homeowner, his only asset is that he has a mortgage and it's really low, he doesn't want to give up that mortgage. Well, if he sells his house, he gives up the mortgage. So he's not going to sell his house. He's not going to move. And that means there's not nearly as many houses on the market for people who want to buy them. Meanwhile, no one's going to build any homes because it's too expensive to build. So the only housing stock that's going to be available is what's already on the market. And the people who own their homes can't afford to give them up. Then we also got bad news on Thursday on unemployment claims for the week. Now, remember, everybody is claiming that the reason the economy is so strong is that we have this super red hot labor market. And I keep pointing out, in fact, it was a title of a recent podcast, jobs are a lagging indicator. So you can't look at all these jobs that existed at the peak of the bubble and assume that these jobs are gonna be here as the air comes out of the bubble. As I said, it's a lagging indicator. Business owners are going to react to the recession. They're not going to forecast the recession. In fact, many of them are going to be blindsided by this recession and they're going to lay people off in mass. But if you look at the numbers that we got on Thursday, weekly unemployment claims were supposed to come out at 210,000 and that would have followed 200,000 in the prior week. Well, the prior week was revised up slightly to 202, but the most recent week saw 229,000 new claims. That's 27,000 more than that upperly revised number. The moving average now up at 215,000. The important thing is this is the most we've got for weekly unemployment claims since mid-January of this year. So clearly, if you're looking at a chart, we've reached a low point in weekly unemployment claims. And I believe those unemployment claims are about to surge as more and more businesses come to terms with economic reality and start laying people off to hunker down and make it through this recession. In fact, even a lot of people now are starting to talk about recession. I've been claiming that we're already in recession. Most people have believed that we were going to avoid recession, but now more and more people are talking about it. I mentioned on the last podcast, Atlanta Fed is already down to 09 for their forecast for Q2 GDP, they're going to make another forecast next week. 
I think they're going to revise it down again, probably still above zero, but barely. I think it'll be below 0.5 will be their next estimate. And I still believe that ultimately we're going to end up with a negative quarter and we will be in recession, but this is not going to be a short, shallow recession. It's not going to last quarters. It's going to last years, and it's going to be worse than the recession that we now call the Great Recession. This is going to be a greater recession. And as a matter of fact, earlier in the week, some big names in the investment industry have been echoing some of my themes. One of them was David Einhorn, who gave a talk at the Irish Shone Conference. By the way, it's been 13 years since they invited me to speak at that conference. I did rise to some notoriety briefly after my correct call on the 2008 financial crisis. And so I did get invited to speak at that conference, but the institutional crowd pretty much forgot about me shortly after that. But in David Einhorn's speech, his top recommendation for the year was gold. And, you know, I learned about this. I was watching CNBC and they reported on the fact that he made this recommendation and the anchors seemed kind of surprised, really shocked about it. They couldn't believe that somebody would recommend gold. And as soon as they reported on that recommendation, they started to critique David Einhorn. Well, like, what does he know? When was the last time he made a good call? So instead of thinking about that as, oh, this is significant, they just immediately dismissed it and said, oh, the guy doesn't even know what he was talking about. I mean, I was thinking to myself, what if David Einhorn had recommended Bitcoin as his top pick? I mean, it would have been the top story on the day. They would have talked about it nonstop on CNBC. But because he actually recommended gold and not Bitcoin, not only did they barely talk about it, they ridiculed him for it. But one of the main reasons that Einhorn is recommending gold is because he says he thinks the Fed is bluffing on their ability to fight inflation and their resolve to raise rates. And the reason that he claimed they can't raise rates is that he said the federal government can't handle it. The impact on the federal budget of higher rates would be so dramatic because of how much debt we have, 31 trillion of debt, all short-term maturities. If the Fed really jacked up interest rates, it would cause a crisis in the federal budget. And Einhorn said, when push comes to shove, when the Fed has to choose basically between bankrupting the government, although he didn't use those words, but I use those words, if the Fed actually fights inflation, the U.S. government's going to have to default on Treasury. Now, he didn't mention default, but he did mention the severe impact it would have on the deficit and the cost of funding that deficit. And he said, if the Fed or when the Fed is forced to choose between saving the government and fighting inflation, it's going to choose to save the government. And so ultimately, it's going to give up its inflation fight in order to prop up the government and enable it to continue to service the national debt and continue to function. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 
When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Now, there's actually a lot of other reasons why the Fed can't fight inflation. That is certainly a big one, but it's not the only one. There's so many problems that would happen if the Fed actually fought inflation. That's why it's not going to do it. But it's doing what it can to pretend that it's going to fight inflation. And it's hoping the pretense is enough. But of course, it won't be. Maybe the Fed is buying itself some time, like it's done before with the lies that it tells. But the time that it's buying is going to ultimately be very expensive because the more the Fed delays the day of reckoning, the more there is to reckon with. In addition to the Einhorn comments, we also heard more from Larry Summers, who is one of the only establishment guys who actually forecasted this increase in inflation, and he gets credit for it. I mean, nobody wants to credit me, but they do credit Larry Summers. And he and his team came out with a survey, and their conclusion was that the inflation that we have today is actually as bad as the inflation we had in the 1970s. Now, I came to the same conclusion without having to do a survey or do a big research report. I could tell anecdotally that that was the case. But now these guys have done this survey. And mainly what they're doing is they're looking at owner's equivalent rent versus home prices and real rents and trying to make the adjustment to compare the inflation of the 1970s and 1980 with the inflation we have today. Because, for example, if you look at that hotter-than-expected CPI number that was out today, according to the government, the cost of shelter was up 5.5% year-over-year. But we know that rents are up more than 15% year-over-year, and home prices are up more than 20% year-over-year. So what the government is putting into the CPI is a number that is much less than anybody pays to either rent a home or buy a home. But those numbers were factored into the CPI in the 1970s. And so what Summer was doing was making the adjustment. And really, instead of taking today's CPI and making it go up, he tried to figure out what the 70s and 80s CPI would have been had we used this methodology. And so he reduced those numbers. And so according to his study, I think peak inflation in 1980 wasn't 13.5%. But if we were measuring it today, it would have been about 9%. If we're at 8.6, we're pretty much at the same level that we were in 1980. Now, I think he overlooked some of the other big changes like substitution and hedonics. So I think we're well above where we were in 1980. But the point that Summer was trying to make was that if inflation is in fact as bad as it was in 1980, then how is the Fed going to solve this problem with the current approach? That it's not nearly enough that the Fed is going to have to get as aggressive now as Volcker did, and that there's simply no way that we're going to get rid of inflation without a recession, which is true. But it's not just that we can't get rid of inflation without a recession. I don't even think we can get rid of inflation without a depression, because the economy is in much worse shape now than it was in 1980. Structurally, in 1980, we still had the world's biggest trade surpluses. America was still a creditor nation, and the entire national debt was barely $1 trillion. Now it's over $30 trillion higher than that. And of course, back then, the debt was financed with 30-year treasury bonds. Now it's financed with 30-day treasury bills. It's all short-term. We had a fixed-rate mortgage back then. We have an adjustable-rate mortgage right now. So there's no way that the Fed can get aggressive without creating a depression. In fact, I don't think there's any way the Fed can get aggressive without forcing the U.S. government to default on treasury bonds. Now imagine that. Imagine how bad an economic downturn would be if the U.S. government was defaulting on its debt. Because think about how bad things were in 2008. In that crisis, you had private mortgage borrowers defaulting on their debt. But guess what? 
the government guaranteed a lot of that debt. So a lot of the lenders, they still got paid. In fact, the reason that we had all the bailouts was because the government was able to substitute its credit for the private credit that went bad. Now, of course, it was the moral hazard of a lot of these guarantees that led to the problem in the first place, but the government was able to cushion the blow by bailing everybody out. But if the government is the epicenter of the next crisis, if in fighting inflation, the Federal Reserve causes the U.S. government to default, well, imagine what's happening to everybody else. If the government's not there to bail anybody out, if the government is also defaulting, well, what about all the private sector loans that are defaulting? Think about how much money people are going to lose when not only are there no government bailouts, but the people who had their money in U.S. treasuries who thought they had a safe haven, they lose too because they're not going to get paid. I mean, maybe they'll get paid something, but they're not going to get 100 cents on the dollar, they're going to get a big haircut and a lot of people are going to get a crew cut or they're going to get a complete buzz. Their head's going to be shaved completely because the bonds that they own are going to go into default and they're going to end up with nothing. So Larry Summers has got it right. He's just sugarcoating it. It's actually way worse than he thinks. All he's done with his research paper is simply validate everything I've been saying from the beginning, and I didn't have to spend any time or money preparing a research report, I was able to connect these very obvious dots from information that should be intuitively obvious to everybody. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if you learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service starting as low as 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them and using their services, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is they're the first company to sell wireless services online only. They cut out the retail stores and they pass those sweet savings directly to you. In fact, when it came time to get my eight-year-old son his own mobile phone, Mint Mobile was the perfect solution. Mint Mobile gives you the best rates, whether you're buying just for one or for the entire family. And at Mint Mobile, families start at just two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan. Keep your same number along with all your existing contacts. So switch to Mint Mobile now and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get that plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com gold. That's mintmobile.com gold. Cut your wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com gold. But as I said at the beginning of this podcast, not only was the inflation news bad, but the way the market reacted to that news was also bad, although the market actually started acting badly yesterday in anticipation of today's bad news. But it wasn't a sell the rumor and buy the fact. It was sell the rumor and sell the fact because the fact was actually worse than the rumor. Although it wasn't just in anticipation of a hot inflation number that was a problem for the markets yesterday. You also had the ECB, and a lot of people were interpreting Lagarde's comments as somehow being hawkish. Now, I watched her press conference, and to me, there was nothing hawkish about what she said, although the bar on what constitutes hawkish these days has really been lowered, because I think the only thing that she said that left this interpretation out there was that maybe if the data warranted it, that the ECB left the door cracked open to maybe doing a 50 basis point rate hike, I don't know, maybe in September or something. But meanwhile, the ECB left interest rates at zero. What Lagarde announced was that in July, that they're prepared to raise interest rates 25 basis points. Now they're still at zero. And all she's talking about is going to 25 basis points In July, they left the deposit rate negative. She did announce that they're going to stop their quantitative easing program, but she also assured the markets that the ECB's balance sheet would not only not shrink, but it would continue to expand even though the asset purchase program is over because what Lagarde announced was for an indefinite period of time, not only will the ECB roll over all the maturing bonds that it owns, but it will reinvest any interest that it earns on those bonds, 
which guarantees that the ECB's balance sheet is going to keep expanding. Now, how this is hawkish when you have the highest inflation in the history of the Eurozone, somewhere between 85 and 9%, And the ECB is leaving interest rates at zero, is continuing to expand its balance sheet. Somehow, this is hawkish. This is extremely dovish. But if that little bit of so-called hawkishness, simply indicating a willingness to maybe raise interest rates by a half a percent in September, if that's enough to hurt the U.S. stock market, can you imagine what would happen if she actually was Hawkish, what if the ECB actually raised rates on Thursday? There were some rumors that they might have done that. They might have surprised the market and actually hiked. They didn't even do that. They left them at zero. So our market is so weak that even a dovish ECB hurt our market. So imagine how much damage a hawkish ECB would have been. But of course, there are no hawks left at any central banks, whether it's the Bank of Japan or here at the Fed. Everybody is dragging their feet. At least the Federal Reserve is pretending that it's not dragging its feet. That's one of the reasons that the dollar is holding up. And I'll get to the dollar in a moment. But if it wasn't for that pretense, the dollar would be tanking and our inflation problem here would be much worse. But anyway, getting to today's reaction in the stock market, the Jones dropped 880 points, pretty much closing on the low of the day. That's a 2.7% decline. But when you factor in the drop from Thursday, the Dow lost 1,519 points in two days. That's a 4.6% drop in two days. That is big. The S&P had an even bigger two-day decline. It was down 2.9% today. And when you add in Thursday's loss, the total decline was 5.2%. In fact, the S&P is now down for 10 out of the past 11 weeks. That's its worst losing stretch since the Great Depression. Russell 2000 held up a little bit better than the S&P, but it lost more than the Dow, down 2.7% on Friday and 4.8% for the two days combined. The Nasdaq did the worst. It dropped 3.3% today and 6.1% over the prior two days. And if you look at how the more speculative tech stocks did, the Kathy Wood ARK Innovation ETF, that ETF dropped 7.1% on the day and was down 12.8% over the two days combined. Now, that ETF hasn't made a new low yet, but I think it will likely make a new low next week. In fact, I think the entire market looks like it's primed to hit new lows as early as next week, maybe even as early as Monday. Now, I know a lot of times I've talked on this podcast about the potential for a Black Monday following a big drop on a Friday, and we haven't had one yet, but it's always, in my mind, reminiscent of 1987 when we had a big drop on a Friday and then we had that crash on Black Monday. But we have all of the makings. The news that we got today was horrific on the economy and the markets technically look like a train wreck. So to me, if I was really long the US stock market, which I'm not, but I would be very nervous over this weekend. I would not be able to enjoy the weekend The fact that so many people are likely to enjoy this weekend is a reflection of just how much complacency is out there. So many people think that we're close to a bottom, even though in reality, we're much closer to a top, especially if the Fed actually does what the markets are afraid they're going to do, and that is be more aggressive to fight off an even larger inflation threat than many people thought we had. In fact, the debacle du jour in the stock market was DocuSign, which hit a new low today. It was down 24.5% on the close. That stock is now down 80% from its high. And the reason for the collapse was another miss on earnings. That stock has reported bad earnings several times and has gapped down a number of times on this decline. And there's probably no end in sight to how much more value this stock's going to lose because it's still 
overpriced, as are a lot of other stocks that have fallen by 70, 80% or more. And of course, the most overvalued of spec assets remains Bitcoin and all of the other cryptocurrencies. Now, whenever I talk about the ARK Innovation ETF, I always talk about the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, GBTC, because those two are very highly correlated. And GBTC dropped 3.8% today, down 4.4% over the two days. Bitcoin still holding up better than I thought. It's hanging in around that 30,000 level, although as I'm recording this podcast on Friday afternoon, it's around 29,200, and we were below 29,000 at one point during the day, but we didn't get below 28,000, so we've been holding out on this range, and I think a lot of people are looking at this as some type of sign that we're at a bottom. To me, if anything, this is just a pause before the next collapse. One thing I've learned over the years is that markets rarely give you a long time to buy the bottom. And so many people think that around 30,000 is the bottom. Well, we've had plenty of time to buy. Usually when there's a bottom, we're not there very long and very few people have the opportunity to buy. I think a lot of people are loading up and they're actually gonna get clobbered in this next leg down. This is a bull trap. People are being suckered into thinking it's a bottom, but the bottom is about to drop out of this market any day. Maybe we can have a crypto black Monday even before Monday. Maybe we'll have a crypto black Monday over the weekend, and that may be a precursor to a black Monday for the stock market. In fact, if you spent your day watching CNBC, you would have no idea that there's the potential for a black Monday or anything like that, because all they had on were stock market bulls reassuring everybody to hold on for the long run, that everything is good, the fundamentals are good. In fact, the same thing with crypto. They had plenty of people on touting Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, even though there's probably more risk there than in any other asset. In fact, the Bitcoin pumpers were even downplaying the risks of all this new pending regulation that's coming for the crypto industry. They actually claimed that it was a good thing, that it meant, well, at least they're not banning it. It legitimizes it. It means Bitcoin is here to stay. It means no such thing. As a matter of fact, one of the main selling points of Bitcoin was always its lack of regulation. There wasn't nearly as much regulation in Bitcoin as there was in traditional finance or payment methods. So that gave Bitcoin an advantage. It helped keep costs down because you didn't have to deal with all the compliance. So when Bitcoin loses that advantage, it's clearly bearish, not bullish. In fact, they didn't have any gold bulls on CNBC today, at least not that I saw. Despite this surge in inflation, it wouldn't dawn on anyone at CNBC that maybe gold would be a viable alternative. In fact, one guy that was on a lot this morning was Jim Cramer telling everybody that all was well. In fact, he's convinced that the only thing the Fed has to do is some shock and awe, raise interest rates 100 basis points on Friday, and that's going to do it. Maybe the market will sell off initially, but then according to Jim Cramer, we're going to have a huge rally because then the markets will finally know that the Fed is serious about fighting inflation. Seriously? 100 basis points? The rate would still be below 2%. How do you fight inflation with an interest rate below 2% when the inflation rate is above 8.5%? A 2% interest rate is stimulative. It is inflationary. The Fed would be pursuing an inflationary monetary policy. You can't put out inflation with inflation, right? You can't put out a fire with gasoline, and that's all the Fed would be doing. Even if you're throwing less gasoline on that fire, you're still throwing gasoline on. And by the way, inflation is moving up faster than the rate hikes. That's why I've been saying that every time the Fed hikes rates, it finds that it's even further behind the curve than it was the last time it hiked. That's why the Fed has to get out in front of inflation. It can't take these baby steps. It needs to leap forward. It needs a massive rate hike, 100 basis points, ain't going to cut it. I don't even know if 500 basis points would cut it. I know that that would collapse the stock market, collapse the real estate market. I mean, we would certainly be in a recession by then. But of course, that's not going to solve the inflation problem. A lot of people assume that when we are in a recession, that that's going to cure inflation. It's not. It's going to kick inflation into a whole new gear. Because when we are in recession in a way that the Fed knows we're in recession, because the 
economic data finally confirms it. The Fed is not going to forecast a recession, but they will react to one once it's already obvious because the data has now borne that out. The Fed is going to focus its attention on stimulating the economy. How does it do that? By creating more inflation. But we're already going to have high inflation and then they're going to create more. And that's when we have the risk of hyperinflation. In fact, this naive belief that recession will cure inflation is obvious in the bond market, which got beat up today. In fact, this was one of the worst days I've seen, in particular in the five-year. In fact, it may have been the worst day of the year for the five-year U.S. Treasury, but all of the U.S. Treasury bonds from the two-year to the 30-year now have a three-handle. The yield on a two-year Treasury is 3.06. The yield on the five-year Treasury surged all the way to close at three and a quarter. And in fact, that is now the high point of the yield curve. For the first time, we actually closed the day and the week, in fact, even traded intraday with an inversion from the fives to the 30s. We've inverted the fives to the 10s, but I hadn't seen an inversion from the fives to the 30s until now. The yield on a 10-year treasury hit a new high for the cycle today at 3.156. The only treasury security that didn't hit a new high in yield and a new low in price was the 30-year. It closed at 3 spot 196. Now, why is the yield on the five-year treasury higher than the yield on a 30-year treasury when you take 25 more years of risk owning a 30-year treasury? The reason is the markets are already looking beyond the rate hikes to the rate cuts. The markets know that the Fed is going to have to hike rates more aggressively because inflation is a bigger problem than they thought. But because the Fed is going to be more aggressive with its near-term rate hikes, the economy is going to be in recession that much sooner, meaning the Fed is going to have to start cutting rates that much sooner. And that is being factored in to the yield curve. But what's also being factored in is the expectation that that recession will bring down inflation. The markets have it completely wrong. And when the markets figure this out, that's when you're going to see some serious selling at the long end of the curve because the markets are now going to have to come to terms with the fact that when the Fed fights recession, it's going to make the inflation problem worse. And inflation is what destroys the value of bonds. And the further out the maturity, the greater the degree of destruction. And so it's the 30-year treasury that should be losing the most value, not the five-year. But while stocks and bonds were tanking, the dollar was rising. In fact, the dollar index had one of its strongest days. It was up about a full point. I think we closed at 104 spot two. Now, that's not a new high for the year. Remember, at one point a few weeks ago, the dollar index peaked above 105. So the dollar hasn't made a new high, but the dollar was up. It initially rose on the hotter than expected inflation numbers. Now, again, That's counterintuitive because we got news that the dollar was losing purchasing power faster than we thought. So if the dollar is losing value faster, why should the exchange rate of the dollar go up? Well, again, we're just talking about the dollar relative to the euro and the yen and the pound and other currencies, and all those currencies are losing value. So the question is, maybe investors expect the dollar to lose less value than the euro or the yen, but they expect all those currencies to lose value. Now, my expectation is that the dollar is going to lose more, but the reason investors expect the dollar to lose less is because they think the Fed is going to be the central bank that gets more aggressive. And so because inflation is worse than investors thought, now the Fed, which is committed to fighting that inflation, is going to have to fight harder. That means even bigger rate hikes, which are supposedly bullish for the dollar. And since the Fed is the only central bank that at least talking about fighting inflation, although the ECB is moving in that direction. The Bank of Japan has done nothing, but the ECB has indicated that it may do something. But still, the Fed is bluffing harder than the ECB. So we got this move into the dollar. But not only did the dollar index rise on the worst than expected inflation data, it rose again on the worst than expected consumer confidence numbers. In fact, the worst consumer confidence number in the history of consumer confidence. Normally, That would tank the dollar because consumer confidence going down is a strong indicator 
of recession, especially if you're one of these Keynesian economists that thinks the whole economy is driven by consumption and consumers only spend if they're optimistic. Well, they're less optimistic than they've ever been in history. In fact, I saw a statistic that the Federal Reserve has never raised interest rates once when consumer confidence was below 60. And we're barely above 50. And so this is uncharted territory. The Fed has never added insult to injury like that. The Fed has never kicked the consumer when the consumer was down. And that's exactly what the Fed is poised to do. So normally you get a really bad consumer confidence number. The dollar tanks. I mean, historically, that's what happened. So why didn't the dollar tank today when that number came out? The dollar rallied again. And this is the rationale. The markets are saying the reason that consumers are so pessimistic is because of inflation. And therefore, the Fed is even more motivated to get rid of inflation because consumers are so worried about it. And so this low confidence number supposedly was yet another reason for the Fed to be more aggressive, except what the markets, again, don't realize is if the Fed actually gets more aggressive, consumer confidence is going to plunge to further new lows because that's going to make things worse. I mean, as the Fed raises interest rates, Consumers are in worse shape because they have a lot of debt. And now that debt is more expensive to service. Plus, these rate hikes are not going to stop inflation. So food prices are going to keep going up. By the way, in the CPI number that we got today, year over year, food at home is up 11.5%. That is a huge increase, and it's going to get worse even if the Fed raises rates. But if they raise rates, that's just going to make the consumer even more pessimistic because not only is he going to deal with rising food prices and energy prices, but rising interest rates. And of course, all the companies that sell products or services that these consumers buy, if they have debt and their debt service costs go up, well, they're going to pass this on to the customers in the form of higher prices. So in the short run, all the Fed is doing is adding additional upward pressure on already rising prices. Plus, as the Fed gets aggressive in fighting inflation, more people are going to lose their jobs. I mean, what's going to happen then? If we have this record low unemployment, but we also have record low consumer confidence, what's going to happen to consumer confidence when unemployment starts to rise? Well, it's obvious. It's going to tank. But when the markets finally figure this out, it's going to be the dollar that's going to tank. And that's going to add more downward pressure to both the bond and stock market and upward pressure on inflation. But one market that may indicate that investors are finally starting to wake up was the gold market. Now, gold's initial reaction to the hotter than expected inflation number was very typical. Gold sold off as the dollar rallied. Again, why should gold suffer from high inflation? After all, gold's an inflation hedge. Again, people are not worried about inflation, so they don't want to hedge. All the people that thought there was no inflation and who then thought inflation was transitory now think inflation is going to go away because the Fed's going to quickly get rid of it, which, of course, is ridiculous. There's no way the Fed is going to do that. In fact, to be bearish on gold, not only do you have to believe the Fed is going to vanquish inflation, but you have to believe it's going to do it without creating a recession, which is impossible. As I said, I don't even think they can vanquish inflation without creating a depression, which is why they're not going to do it. But still, every time there's some hotter than expected inflation news that gets the market to think, aha, now the Fed's going to fight harder to conquer inflation, collateral damage is in the gold market, gold sells off. And that's exactly what happened. Gold sold off maybe 20 bucks early in the day. And it was still down when the consumer confidence numbers came out. And I expected to see an immediate rally in gold off that consumer confidence number, but it didn't happen right away. But it did happen. We got a turnaround and gold ended up positive about $24 on the day. Gold closed at $18.72. Silver was also up about 23 cents on the day, closing at $21.91. So that is a sign that maybe investors are figuring it out. They haven't totally figured it out because if they did, the dollar would have gone down, not up. And also, the 30-year Treasury would have had a bigger drop than it did. So I'm looking for those indications. Maybe that'll happen next week. Maybe that will happen Monday 
if we get a Black Monday, maybe investors will be piling into gold and dumping 30-year treasuries, which will certainly add momentum to the downward move in the U.S. stock market. And in addition to gold going up, gold stocks went up too. They shrugged off weakness in the stock market. And instead of following stocks lower, they followed the metal higher. In fact, the GDX was up 4.76% on the day, wiping out all of yesterday's big losses. I think over the two days combined, the GDX was up 0.8, so not quite a full percent. But I did think it was significant that we got this rally in gold stocks. And by the way, gold stocks have been an unexpected victim of inflation. The reason for that is inflation has really driven up the cost of mining. Energy costs have gone through the roof. In fact, if you look at the price of oil in relation to gold, oil is very expensive. You don't even get 15 barrels of oil for an ounce of gold, although actually looking at the close, it's a little bit more. But earlier in the day, it was below 15. The average historically is around 20, where you get 20 barrels of oil for an ounce of gold. The typical range is anywhere from 10 on the extreme low end to maybe 30. Now, we actually got well above 30. Oil got very, very cheap for a little while during COVID, but obviously it's corrected that. But oil is now expensive in terms of gold. Now, I don't think that's going to stay that way. I think gold prices are going to go up to catch up to oil. But in the meantime, if you're a gold mining company, and your oil costs have gone up a lot more than what you're getting for your gold, that's a problem. Plus, other costs are going up. Labor costs are going up. So these mining companies are seeing an increase in their cost, but because so many investors don't expect inflation to continue, they think inflation is going to go away because they believe the Fed. The price of gold is not going up nearly as much as the cost of mining it, and so inflation is actually hurting these gold stocks. But once investors understand that not only is inflation here to stay, but it's going to get much worse, they're going to rush into gold and the price of gold is going to rise much faster than the cost of mining it. And that means the profits for these gold companies are going to explode and the price is going to follow. And finally, I want to finish up the podcast by talking about President Biden and his reaction to the inflation numbers. In fact, one of the rumors that's been circulating around is that one way that Biden is thinking about lowering inflation is by eliminating the tariffs on Chinese goods that Donald Trump imposed on that trade war that we basically lost. And yes, if you take away those tariffs, that will lower prices somewhat. I mean, it's also an admission that it's Americans that pay the tariffs, not the Chinese. Donald Trump always pretended he was taxing the Chinese. And I always pointed out that it was Americans who were paying the tariffs. It was a tax on Americans, not on the Chinese. And removing that tax obviously benefits Americans because Americans are paying the tariffs, not the Chinese. But it's not going to lower inflation because those tariffs are generating revenue to the U.S. government. So if the government gets rid of those tariffs, it's a tax cut. And now the government has less money. So where is it going to get the money that it used to get from tariffs? Well, it's going to have to get it from the Fed. It's going to have to borrow it. And then the Fed is going to have to monetize it. So they're actually going to have to create more inflation in order to pay for the elimination of the tariffs. So that is not going to work. You can't fight inflation by targeting prices. That's why every time Biden says that he's working on ways to lower the price of food or lower the price of energy. None of that's going to work because prices are not causing inflation. The government is causing inflation. The government is spending money that the Federal Reserve is printing. So until they stop the deficit spending and stop the money printing, none of this is going to work. Now, before President Biden made his speech today, on inflation. He also made an appearance earlier in the week on the Jimmy Kimmel show. And I guess he went on that show because he was expecting to get some softball questions that he could hit out of the park. And I I don't want to talk about the entire 20 minutes that he was on uh, the Kimmel show. I just want to point out some of the comments that he made specifically about inflation. He acknowledged that inflation was the bane of his existence, that other than inflation, We had this booming economy. We had the greatest economy ever. And the only problem is this pesky inflation thing. And then he said it's mainly in food and gas prices, which is not true. It's everywhere. It's not just in food and gas prices. It's in all prices. 
But sticking true to form, he blamed everything on Putin. He blamed everything on greedy companies, in particular on the Kimmel show. He talked about the drug companies. He said, oh, they're making all this money. He talked about how much it costs them to physically produce a drug and then how much they mark it up. And he was saying, there's no reason for these drug companies to charge so much. They're making too much money. They're greedy. Of course, what Biden doesn't seem to understand is the cost of the drug is not the actual cost of making it. It's the millions, hundreds of millions that you have to spend getting the government to approve it. If Biden wants drugs to cost less, then he needs to get the FDA to back off. You need to make it easier to get drugs approved. I've been saying all along, forget about forcing companies to prove efficacy. Just make them prove that the drugs don't hurt people. And as long as they don't hurt, let the free market, let the doctors decide if they work. We don't need to make these companies prove to a bunch of bureaucrats that they work because then it costs them hundreds of millions of dollars that they then need to recoup. And in the meantime, a lot of drugs that might actually work are kept off the market just because the drug companies couldn't convince the bureaucrats that they work. Then, of course, he also blamed high inflation on the fact that big corporations aren't paying enough taxes. That's not the problem. In fact, if big companies paid more taxes, they'd have less money available to make capital investments. Now, a lot of these companies aren't even making capital investments. At least they weren't, thanks to the Fed keeping interest rates artificially low. They were just buying back their own stock. But what we want is for businesses to retain more earnings and invest them productively, not send them to the government where they can be blown on consumption. The reality is, It's the public that's not paying a high enough tax. If we want all the government programs that Biden is in favor of, it's average Americans who have to foot the bill. It's the middle class that's not being taxed enough. Now, personally, I think they're being taxed too much because I don't want all these government programs. My preference is to eliminate all these programs and let the middle class off the hook. But if Biden wants these programs, then unfortunately, it's the middle class that has to pay for it. The reality is they're not paying for it through taxation. They're paying for it through inflation. Inflation is the tax, and that's what enables government to pay for all this spending. So it's not Putin, it's Biden. Biden is the problem. It's not Putin's price hikes. It's Biden's price hikes. It's Powell's price hikes. And even Putin himself understands this because he publicly called out Biden for blaming inflation problems that were created here in America on him. And in fact, even if you're going to try to blame the inflation on what's going on in the Ukraine, the problem isn't that Russia invaded the Ukraine. The problem is that we sanctioned Russia for invading the Ukraine. The sanctions are doing more damage than the war, although the root cause of the inflation is not the sanctions or the war. It's the Fed and the money printing, and it's the government and the money spending. Which brings me to Biden's speech today that he gave out on a port in California. And he started off by saying that we've never seen anything like this Putin tax. The inflation tax, he blamed it on Putin. We've never seen anything like it. He claimed that he was doing everything in his power to blunt the Putin price hikes. He was working to bring down the price of food, bring down the price of gas, that the prices were up because of Putin, and he was working hard to bring them down, not accepting any responsibility for any role in creating this inflation problem. In fact, he reiterated the lie that the U.S. economy is the strongest it's ever been. It's the strongest in the world. It's the best prepared to fight inflation when it's actually the worst prepared. In fact, it's never been more unprepared to fight inflation than it is right now. In fact, he repeated the same lie that American families have less debt and more savings than when he took office, even though that's not the case. Debt has exploded. Savings have imploded. Yet he's reading the same lines off the same speech. Nobody has told these speechwriters that this just isn't true. And then he also repeated the lie that he is cutting the deficit. And so therefore, inflation can't be a result of his deficit spending when he's reducing the deficits. Well, even if he is reducing the deficits, He's reducing them from an enormous level that was unprecedented because it happened during the height of the COVID bailouts. It's still a huge deficit, which is adding to the inflation problem. You just can't make an enormous deficit less enormous and claim that you're not part of the problem. 
We need to eliminate the deficit. If we really want to fight inflation, we have to eliminate the deficit, not just make it slightly smaller than the record high. So to claim that his deficit spending has nothing to do with inflation, simply because those deficits are not as large as they once were, is another lie. And of course, those deficits are poised to get a lot larger during their next recession. And in fact, when Biden was bragging about how strong the economy was, thanks to his policies, he basically said it's as strong as it can be, but for this inflation thing. Like, yes, we got this little pesky inflation problem, but if you ignore that, everything is fine. It reminds me of that old saying, but apart from that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the show? I mean, there is no strong economy. Why does Biden think his approval rating is so low? Why does Biden think consumer confidence is at an all-time record low? Because we have a great economy, but for this one small little problem of inflation, we have a horrible economy. Inflation proves that it's horrible. And all those jobs that he claims credit for creating, A, he didn't create those jobs. Those jobs were merely put on hold when Trump was president. And when he became president, workers simply returned to jobs they already had. Well, now those jobs that were lost temporarily on Trump's watch are about to be lost permanently on Biden's watch. And finally, Biden once again blamed inflation on those greedy corporations that are jacking up prices and gouging their customers. Two in particular that he singled out during this speech were foreign-owned shipping companies, and he made a point to say they were foreign-owned as if there were some domestic-owned shipping companies that weren't jacking up their prices. All of the shipping companies are foreign-owned, which is in and of itself another problem. We have foreign-owned shipping companies delivering foreign-produced products. That is the problem with the U.S. economy. We should be producing more products ourselves. We should be building and owning more ships ourselves. But we're not because we have this bubble economy thanks to the Fed. But these companies are not gouging customers. They are simply responding to the inflation that's being created. There is a free market. There is competition. If shipping companies could gouge their customers, they would have been gouging them for years. Why wait until 2022? If you have the power, why not exercise it? Biden also blamed rising oil prices on greedy oil companies that are refusing to drill for oil. Now, first of all, if they were so greedy, why wouldn't they drill more oil? Oil is $120 a barrel. I mean, if you've got it, drill it. I mean, why wouldn't they want to make these profits, especially since they're so greedy? Now, Biden was saying the reason they don't want to drill more oil is because they want to keep the supply down so the price will go up. The U.S. production is not affecting price. We can increase production and prices are going to stay high. The oil companies would make more money if they could ramp up production. The problem is they can't do it. And Biden was also upset that oil companies were buying back stock. Well, if they weren't buying back stock, they'd be paying dividends. Buybacks are another way that investors get a return on their investment. After all, when you invest in an oil stock, you're taking risk. You're certainly entitled to enjoy the returns as a trade-off for assuming all that risk. But if he's upset about stock buybacks, he should be talking about the Federal Reserve and keeping interest rates artificially low, because if interest rates weren't so low, we wouldn't have as many buybacks. In fact, more companies would be investing in plant and equipment instead of buying back stock. But the reality is prices are going up because of inflation. Companies aren't causing inflation by raising prices. Inflation is forcing companies to raise prices. The politicians just want to blame the inflation they cause on the companies. The companies are raising prices because they have no choice. They have to cover their rising costs. Why are their costs going up? Because of the government. You know, a lot of people like to say that, oh, this is not the Fed's fault because the Fed is not in control of supply, all these shortages and bottlenecks. It has to do with supply. Well, yes, But when that was obvious, when we ordered all these lockdowns, when it was obvious that supply was going to be restrained because we were halting production, what was the appropriate monetary policy to withdraw money from circulation, 
to remove excess dollars so that demand would go down along with supply and prices would stay in equilibrium. That's what I said the Fed needed to do in real time. Instead, the Fed and every other central bank did the opposite of what they should have done. As supply was going down, they forced demand up. They printed all this money and mailed out all these stimulus checks, the opposite of what should have been happening. Instead of shrinking the money supply, they expanded the money supply. So we increased demand as supply was going down. That is the Fed's fault. Now, why did the Fed do that? Well, because they didn't want a deeper recession. And so they traded a future inflation problem for a current recession problem. And now we're in the future and we're having to deal with the consequences. The Fed sowed the winds of inflation and now we're all reaping the whirlwinds. 